It's wonderful to see our covenant children every week uh, going out to learn about Jesus, even as they were dedicated to him uh, at their baptisms as well. So, All right, if you have your Bible this morning, please turn to Mark chapter 4 and 5. That's where we're going to be today in our sermon. Uh, if you would allow me, let's go to God in prayer again, asking his blessing upon the reading. Oh Lord God, we thank you for the blessings today that we celebrate so many blessings of family, blessings of life, and blessings most of all of your covenant mercy. God, as we turn to the word, it's full of covenant promises. I pray that we would embrace those promises today and that we would be saved, us and our households. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me read to you, starting in uh, verse 35 of chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, again, you can find this in the bulletin. On that day, when evening had come... Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And when they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind, they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. They began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. 
And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. What a story. In fact, what stories this morning that we have. We have two. Uh, This is actually the first of a string of three stories. We'll, We'll cover the next one next week. Where Jesus demonstrates his power over something that people are afraid of. In the first story, it's a natural disaster. We're all afraid of that. Jesus conquers it. Second story, mysterious evil spirits, demons. We're certainly afraid of that. Uh, I realize, you know, not everybody may believe in them, but we do. And the Bible certainly teaches that they're real. And if we were to encounter them, I'm sure we all would be terrified. And yet Jesus commands even the demons. And next week we'll see disease and death too, which we're afraid of, are handled by Jesus. Jesus in these stories is doing something that we call pulling rank. Uh, How do you like it when someone around you pulls rank? A lot of times when when that happens to us, we bristle, you know, we get, someone says, hey, I'm your boss. This is an order. You must do it. Something in us just recoils from that. We're Americans after all. (laughs) And we don't like to be told what to do by anybody. And yet, I think all of us would admit there are times in which, pulling, in which pulling rank is necessary, and there are times when we need to listen to the one who is pulling rank. This is one of those cases. Uh, I'm a big fan of the Lord of the Rings books and movies. There's a scene in the third movie called The Return of the King, which is all about, well, the return of the king, uh, whose name is Aragorn, uh, who had been kicked out of his kingdom for many years, and a steward had been placed on his throne. Uh, and Gandalf came and announced to the steward, the king is back and you better get ready for it. And the steward said, I will not be ruled by some ranger from the north. And Gandalf responds, authority is not given to you to deny the return of the king, steward. Think about that this morning. Authority has not been given you to deny the return of the king. As the disciples were on this boat, as they were on the the seashore watching Jesus command demons, that's what Jesus was saying to them without saying it. The king is here. The Lord has arrived on earth. And as stewards, me and you are stewards, not lords, we have no authority to deny his kingship. Look at your bulletin. I want to meditate with you a little bit this morning on these three parts of the story. First of all, Jesus is the Lord of creation. Secondly, he's the Lord over evil. And lastly, he can be Lord of your heart. First of all, he's the Lord of all creation. The disciples got into the boat with Jesus there in chapter 4, verse 35. It was something they had done many times before. In fact, the disciples were all fishermen on this same lake, which was called a sea because it was so big. I think we would all admit they have seen storms on this lake. This is not their first rodeo. But there was something about this particular storm that night that they would always remember. First of all, because apparently this storm was the greatest one they had ever seen before. Did you notice how even these seasoned fishermen were afraid they were going to die? 
They came to Jesus. Don't you care, Jesus, that we are perishing, that we're dying here, and you're literally asleep on a cushion in the stern? What's going on? These fishermen believed they were dead men. That's how bad the storm was. The waves were coming over the side of the boat and filling the boat up. I think all of us would be in full freak-out mode. And yet, notice how the story is told. This is not a story that is meant to be seen as a legend or a myth. This is a story meant to be seen as the reporting of what actually happened. This is not a George Washington chopped down the cherry tree kind of story, right? Which is just kind of a legend that's grown up around a very heroic person. This is not that. Notice how many details are given in the story that are not exactly that important. This is, it almost reminds me of uh, when a cop comes to somebody to interview them who's been an eyewitness to a wreck or some other crime. Uh, the cop wants to know everything the person saw, even if the person doesn't think it's that important. The cop's like, tell me everything. And he's writing it down. Because eyewitness testimony does that. It doesn't just notice things that are important. It notices everything. And, and so, so look there in verse 35. They remembered what time of day it was, what exact day it was. Uh, they remembered that when Jesus got into the boat, verse 36, he didn't go home to change his clothes first. He just went into the boat just as he was. I mean, why do they need to tell us that? And then uh, we're told that the boat was filling up with water. This is a very... Uh, specific detail that they remember. And then verse 38, Jesus is not just asleep. He's in the stern, the back of the boat. Why do we need to know that? And he's also on the cushion. Why do we need to know that? This story is not told like a myth. This story is told like these men are being interviewed by the cops. What happened? And they're saying it all. I got good news this morning. This world is not without a creator God. Did you hear me? This world, with all of its forces, even the natural forces that terrify us, is not without a creator and a director. And in the person of Jesus Christ, the great creator, the great director, came into this world to demonstrate God's power in time. One writer says this miracle is really just a window into what God is always doing all the time. It's just a brief momentary glimpse behind the curtain, behind the veil to show you what God is up to every time. Because God is always directing the wind. God is always directing the seas. Every storm, every natural disaster in the hands of a creator God. He's the only one that could possibly have control over that because he's the only one outside of creation that could direct it. Do you see that? This is the problem with so many people in our time, and many of us, maybe some of you, uh, may assume a naturalistic view of the world, which says the external world, all that we can see is all that there is. There is no creator God. There is nothing outside and beyond the physical, the tangible. Well, here's... A key problem with that. If there's nothing outside of creation, that means creation has no design. That means creation is random. Well, guess what's also a part of the creation which is random? You. Guess what part of you is also random? Your brain. Guess what part you're using right now to figure out, so to speak, that there is no God? Your brain that is just random. Do you trust it? Do you trust it enough 
in its reasoning capabilities, if your brain is just a bunch of mush that came together over time by random chance, do you really think it's a reliable guide to what the world really is like, let alone to what's beyond the world? The problem with naturalism is it's self-defeating. The thing about believing in God is, yeah, there are some leaps you have to make of faith. There are things we don't understand that cause us to have to leap over the, over the chasm, so to speak. But it makes a whole lot more sense because if there's someone outside of creation, there's rhyme and reason within it. We can actually trust these things a little bit because God designed them for a reason. And there is someone directing even the wind and the waves. Jesus peels back the layers of curtain to show us what God is always doing. And he is showing us that he himself is that God who made the world. Take your finger and put it in Mark 4 and leave it there. And go back to Psalm 89. Psalm 89, which is almost exactly halfway through your Bible. Psalm 89, verses 8 to 9. Listen to what it says. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord? Who is mighty like you? With your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Do you see that? The great answer to the disciples' very important question in verse 41 of Mark 4, who then is this that the wind and the waves obey him? The answer is found in Psalm 89, 8 through 9. It can only be the one true creator whose word made the sea, and therefore his word can comment. His word sends the wind, and therefore his word can call the wind off. And so Jesus, who is sleeping on a cushion, wakes up and with three simple words, peace, be still, the wind stops, the waves stop. Many people have pointed out how amazing that is. You would think if the wind stopped, the sea would keep churning for a little while after, but this story makes it seem like as soon as he said it, not only did the wind stop, but miraculously even the waves became glass. This is incredible. In fact, what was described um, up there at the beginning as a great storm, verse 37, is described after Jesus speaks in verse 39 as a great calm. Storm, you have met your match in Jesus Christ. Things that we're afraid of in the natural world, whatever they may be, you have met your match in Jesus Christ. You have met your creator. And just like a, a dog knows the voice of his owner and listens to his owner, this world knows its owner and listens to the owner when he says, sick him, or when he says, heal, boy. And Jesus here is giving the word to heal. And the wind and the waves heal before the Lord of the universe. Now just think about the marvel this morning of who Jesus is. Do you believe this about Jesus? Do you believe he's so much more than just a garden variety religious teacher? He's more than just another pastor. Praise the Lord. 
He's more than just a great martyr who died for a good cause. He is the creator God who speaks to his creation and it falls into line. Who then is this? The Lord of heaven and earth. Now secondly, I want you to see that Jesus also has mastery over evil. It's easy for us to think, okay, yeah, God's in control. I follow you there. He made everything. He commands the sea and the wind. Yes, but why is there so much evil in the world and what is God doing about it? Well, notice what happens. Verse 1 of chapter 5. As soon as Jesus gets done calming the storm, he lands, it says, on the other side of the Sea of Galilee to the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had stepped out of the boat, he just as soon as his feet hit the ground, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Jesus meets evil on the lakeshore. Now, um, this is important why this detail is given. Why is it that as soon as Jesus lands and steps out of the boat, boom, there's a demon-possessed man there to, a, to basically confront Jesus? Think about this. Have you seen the videos and pictures of things that are happening in Ukraine these past several months? I think we all, by this point, have seen lots of it. You always see different kinds of people moving in different directions on these pictures. Sometimes... You see people moving to the east, towards the front line. Usually those are what kind of people? Soldiers. They're dressed like soldiers. They've got fatigues on. They've got weapons. They're driving tanks and trucks. They're not just ordinary people. But then you see pictures of other kinds of people going the, to the west, the opposite direction. Who are they normally? Civilians. Regular clothes, carrying their possessions, carrying their kids, looking very distressed going as far away from the front line as they can. Now think about this. When Jesus lands on the beach, the demons come to meet him immediately. What does that say about Jesus? What does that say about the demons? What does it say about what Jesus came into the world to do to the demons? War! Jesus is the king who comes to declare war on evil. And they know it. In fact, they know it better than the disciples know it at this point. As soon as they saw the thing going on with the storm, they were kind of freaked out. I, I can imagine the demons observed that. And they knew, oh boy, here it comes. Let's go meet him. And so they come out there, and it's almost like they're trying to negotiate with Jesus. Uh, they know they're going to have to leave this man that they've been torturing for years. They just want to make sure they can go kind of to someplace relatively comfortable. And so they do this whole admittedly weird thing with the pigs, where they ask to go into the pigs. And Jesus does, in fact, give them permission to do so. Now, what did they do as soon as they go into the pigs? Destroy the pigs. In fact, I would say they do to the pigs the same thing they had been trying to do to the man for years and years and years. They were doing what demons do. They were doing what fallen angels do, what Satan does. He came to steal, kill, and destroy. The total destruction of people made in God's image is Satan's number one aim. And Jesus, when he came into the world, came to face that aim head on and to overthrow it completely. 
to undo Satan's work of destruction and to bring into the world life and deliverance where there was destruction. Jesus is the snake crusher. Y'all know about the snake crusher? Some of y'all might not know. Some of you may know. But in Genesis chapter 3, 15, God made a promise to Adam and Eve. As soon as they had sinned, he said, One day, Eve, you're going to have a child way down the line who is going to crush the head of the serpent. Bless you. Snake crusher. And Jesus, when he sends out, again, he's just using his words here. He's just using his powerful word. And the demons go. They leave the man. We know they left the man because they entered the pigs. We know they entered the pigs because the pigs rushed down the hill and were destroyed. You say, poor pigs. Yes, poor pigs. But just recognize how evil demons are from this story. And also recognize how much more Jesus values you than pigs. All human beings are more valuable than the animals to God, although the animals are very valuable to God. Jesus, with a word, meets the destroyer and ceases his activity of destruction. Isn't that good? You say, what is God doing? This world is so full of evil. What in the world is he up to? This is what he's up to. He started it with the first coming of Jesus. He's continuing it today in the hearts of men and women as he comes in to become their Lord, and he will finish it when he returns again. And you and I are on notice. I'm on notice. I have no authority to deny the coming of the king. He's here. And he's here to destroy the destroyers. To sweep away the wickedness. And to bring in life. Snake crusher. And I know there's somebody in here who thinks they can still manage their spiritual problems on their own. Somebody in here who thinks that, you can't. We baptized baby Elijah earlier. We were saying that little baby needed to be washed by the blood of Jesus. Right? It means we believe he was born bad. To put it more precisely, he was born a sinner who needs a Savior. And so were you. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, a very dire thing about humans. It says this, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh and in carrying out the desires of our bodies and minds, who are by nature, by birth, children of wrath as the rest of mankind is. That's the Bible's picture of humans. In other words, our place is alongside this man named Legion. You might not be possessed by the devil, but every person by nature is under the dominion of the devil unless they're claimed by the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible says he came to claim us. He came with a mission from the Father. The Father had loved us before the foundation of the world. Jesus came through his death and resurrection to overthrow Satan's dominion. And he did so. The resurrection proves it. And now Jesus reigns to extend new life to more and more people under Satan's dominion. The king is here. 
The king can be trusted. The king is doing something about evil. The one who made the heavens and the earth, the one who commands the seas and the waves and the wind is also the one that could command the evil right out of this place. And he's in process. Now all that leads us to our last thing. And this is, this is important. I want to think about this with you before we close. If this is who he is, don't you want him to be the Lord over your heart? Over your life? Don't you think he can be trusted with that? Don't you realize that at the end of the day, you have no authority to deny the return of the king? I'm speaking here not just to those who aren't Christians yet, but to Christians. Sometimes we live as if Jesus is not the Lord of our heart. Think about this. When children are small, don't they think their parents can do anything? Now, if they do grow out of this, I'll tell you, you know, as they get older, they start to think their parents can do nothing. And there's that period from 15 to 21 or so when you think, you know, your dad's the dumbest person ever, your mom's crazy. And, and then all of a sudden when you hit 22, your dad went to school somehow. And he learned so many things. And your mom, you know, wow, she really has made good on herself and improved. And really what it is is you used to know better as a kid and then you lost it as a teenager. And then you learn to think more sensibly again. We all do, right? Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, said, you know, it's unthinkable that a little kid, if, if their parents are good to them, it's unthinkable that a little child would look at their parents and think, He can't do any more than I can do. She can't do any more than I can do. I can't pick this up. Dad can't pick it up either. No kid thinks that way, right? Every kid understands their parents are bigger than they are, and they rejoice in that fact. They're not ashamed of it. Listen to Spurgeon. Yet... Even though kids wouldn't do this to their parents, yet this is the common error of the children of God. We do not raise our thoughts about God to a God-like level. We think our own thoughts of God and straightway we doubt. We doubt all the time. Oh, that we rose to God's thoughts, he says, and tried to conceive how he looks upon matters. Surely he taketh up the isles as a very little thing, and the mountains he weighs in scales. If our troubles were set in the light of God's power and love and faithfulness and wisdom, they would become to us as small burdens. Why should we not so regard them, right? Why, why must we, why can't we just think like little children before our Heavenly Father? Why not compute our load by the Father's strength and abilities? And then we would see how easily he can carry it. Listen, estimating divine strength by human standards is one of the childish things that we must learn to put away. Oh Lord, forgive me for having undersold the Lord Most High (laughs) so often in my life. And yet, that's what the disciples did on the boat. Lord, don't you care? Don't you care? Why don't you care? That's the way I am. Way too often. When I don't have peace outside, I don't have peace inside. When I do have peace outside, I do have peace inside. Guess what? That peace ain't worth nothing. 
Because it's circumstantial peace. It's understandable peace. Jesus came to give us a peace past understanding. A peace that's more than circumstantial. When there's a storm outside, we can sleep in the stern. If only we will think God-like thoughts of God rather than man-like thoughts of God. And so Peter, years later, when he is arrested and he's chained between two Roman soldiers, it tells us in Acts 2, Peter slept soundly. He learned, I mean, he, he, was, he, he learned the lesson of the boat that he didn't know. To judge God by God's standards rather than human standards. Same thing with the man demon-possessed. When he was demon-possessed, he just wanted Jesus to get as far away from him as possible. Right? When Jesus healed him, what happened? Beautiful. The man is completely restored. He's sitting there, verse 15, chapter 5, clothed in his right mind, not cutting himself anymore. And notice what he says, verse 18. He begged Jesus that he might go with him. He began to judge Jesus with godlike thoughts. And when Jesus set him free, he wanted nothing more than to be right with him. Jesus didn't let him for whatever reason, doesn't tell us why. But he did tell him, go home and tell everybody how much mercy God has had on you. And he does. And man, do people marvel at his story. He becomes kind of the first preacher of the gospel in the Decapolis region. A guy who was raving lunatic. They tried to lock him up and they tried to hide their kids from him. Suddenly becomes the preacher. And y'all, when we judge God by God's standards, when we judge Christ in terms of who he really is, a real freedom as well as a real peace comes into your life. A real freedom. Notice, freedom for this man doesn't mean leave me alone so I can do what I want. My fellow Americans, freedom does not mean leave me alone so I can do whatever I want. Now, I get it, right? In terms of civil government, there's truth to that, of course. But in terms of God, there is no truth to it at all. Freedom is not leave me alone so I can do what I want. Freedom is save me, change me, so that I can do what you want me to do. What you made me to do, O creator of the heavens and the earth. Right? And this man, when he began to judge Jesus rightly, was set free, and we know it because he begged to be with Jesus, and he eagerly obeyed what Jesus told him to do. This morning, I know some of us, I think all of us, need peace that's more than circumstantial. Isn't that right? Circumstantial peace, anybody can have that. This kind of peace, only Jesus can give it. And I know, oh, heaven knows, we need freedom. So often we believe the lie that freedom is me getting to do what I want to do with my own life all the time. And you ask people who actually live that way, kids, who are older, and they'll tell you it ends in bitterness and destruction. Because you don't know even what you ought to do half the time. Oh, how we need freedom from Jesus to want to do what God made us to do. True human. Amen?